Hey guys, before we get going, if you use trading apps, you got to check out eToro. It's a good way to gain exposure to Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies while still getting your fix with the more traditional assets that you might know more about or just want more exposure to. eToro is also a social trading platform, which means it's kind of like social media and trading together. With copy trading, you can copy or just sort of adapt to the trading strategies of some of the best traders worldwide on the platform. This is not only going to give you exposure to how people are buying Bitcoin, but it's also going to show you what people are doing when they're expecting downturns or, you know, one of those bull runs. So head over to eToro.com to get started on your 2020 portfolio today. eToro, smart crypto trading made easy. Hey guys, welcome back. Dave Hollerith here. This is part two of our series on Lebanon and Bitcoin. In part one, I spoke with Mike Azar, a financial consultant and lecturer. That episode was less about Bitcoin and more about understanding the current political and economic problems that the financial crisis has brought to Lebanon. You don't have to listen to that episode to get something out of this one, but I definitely recommend it. It's going to help you understand how Lebanon's import-export scenario is working right now, also what the central bank's been doing for the last decade or more, and why that's put Lebanon in such a precarious position right now. In part two, this episode, I have an interview with Mark Serafim. So Mark grew up in Lebanon, and he went to college at the American University of Beirut. For the last decade, Mark has lived in the U.S. He's worked in the tech scene as a programmer for companies like Microsoft, also been in the startup area for a little bit. But a lot of Mark's family still live in Lebanon, and he goes there probably, I'd say, at least four times a year. When he got back from Thanksgiving, he wrote this Medium post that I found about Lebanon's financial crisis and how Bitcoin could play a role in the future. So yes, Mark is a Lebanese Bitcoiner. There's your bias. And the conversation we have is not so much about figuring out how Bitcoin can solve Lebanon's financial problems. That's a pipe dream. This episode's more about the future of Lebanon, what its citizens are going to do six months, a year from now, if the financial crisis worsens or you know plays out as we're expecting it to. Mark talks about why Bitcoin makes a lot of sense to people who live in Lebanon right now. He also talks about how hard it is to actually have a Bitcoin account in Lebanon and how most people are just stashing everything in US paper dollars Making sort of a comparison contrast with Venezuela is definitely appropriate here. And in that sense, scamming is definitely something Mark thinks will become a bigger issue. Anyway, it was a solid interview. Hope you guys enjoy it. Here it is. Yeah, so thanks for coming on. I found your article on Bitcoin in Lebanon or Bitcoin in, in relationship to the Lebanese financial crisis. And I thought you had a really interesting perspective. And so to begin with, before we get into that article, can you just kind of describe your background and perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's kind of a funny story because I, I wouldn't necessarily call myself like a early Bitcoin adopter in any shape or form. I actually got That's really good. into Bitcoin about a year ago, as I would say, when it made a lot of sense to me. Uh -huh. uh, the reason was, I guess, like it, it's the, the context is what really mattered. So, uh, you know, I've been in tech for, for most of my life. Like I work in machine learning. More recently, I work in robotics. Like I, I, I've been writing like an online book called the Robot Overlord Manual that was really fun. So that kind of got me in the habit of, of writing a lot. 
and you know completely independently i i had picked up like saifuddin amus's book like the bitcoin standard and it resonated a lot with me because uh, i felt like a lot of the more tech heavy books on bitcoin kind of didn't do the technology justice it it didn't explain what i felt was the core value proposition and to be more specific there um i feel like in the us uh while there is a uh, there is a reasonable use case for example for bitcoin uh i would argue it's more of a you know nice to have mm-hmm. versus in a, a lot of parts of the world that i feel it's become like kind of just like a like almost like an act of survival in some sense just to preserve uh, preserve your savings and so the the idea there was uh i had noticed that uh, about 3 months ago i i visited lebanon and i I, I was like, you know, chatting with some friends, and when I would talk to them about Bitcoin, like everyone just thought I was like insane. They're like, like, why would anyone care about this? Like, this is so irrelevant. Like, this is not that important in the grand scheme of things. It's a bubble. Blah blah blah. What about all the other coins? Blah blah blah. Uh, but I noticed like this time something was different. Like, it felt like a, a couple of like weeks before I actually landed over the holiday break over December. Uh, my friends were asking me a lot of questions about Bitcoin. they were interesting questions and so i i i realized like there was like definitely like a a couple that they had in common so i was like okay great well let me just like write them all down and maybe this will resonate with with more people and it it, it did it, it was the case which was really surprising for me like i hadn't written anything about uh bitcoin in the past i didn't expect it to be uh popular either but but i feel like basically the the use case became very obvious because in the past like 3 months ago my friends would be maybe interested in bitcoin because they think like oh is it going to grow a lot and i'm going to make a lot of money so they thought of it as an investment vehicle but now now the conversation was more like well like the central bank and banks are making all sorts of weird decisions and these decisions are affecting like my savings like i now can no longer withdraw my money like there's a very real consequence to these decisions yeah how can bitcoin help me and i think that was the more interesting value proposition for me and it's kind of what i spent more time thinking about in my article are you of lebanese descent yeah like i'm i'm uh, i i'm i basically half lebanese like i was born in the us but my parents both grew up in lebanon so i was in lebanon up until uh undergrad like i i studied there in engineering at american university of beirut and then i came <laughs> to the us for grad school and have been here ever since it's been about like 8 9 years uh since yeah uh one thing i've noticed uh, in trying to learn more about this i actually just spoke to uh this guy he's a part of the the nerds group uh-huh. uh, which you you reference in in your article um uh-huh. his name was uh mike azar and uh-huh. uh it, it's very interesting to see the population of lebanese people outside of the country who are taking initiative in in trying to understand the situation and and share the sort of financial happenings in Lebanon to a wider community and it seems like y'all are the people who are who are essentially trying to spread the idea about bitcoin as a use case which is is very interesting um yeah so 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 i will say even like so 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 that group that you're referring to like they they call themselves the nerds and they were kind of like brought together by this like anonymous account with like a peter griffin as his like image profile like no one knows who this person is or yeah. a bunch of people or anything so like i i guess like anonymity has like this like appeal but but i will say this like basically what what i found particularly enticing about this group of people is that i remember like ever since like my you know my childhood in some sense that like you know you like uh, you know like like parents come back from work like they put on the news and it's like all this like serious stuff and people are on tv just like waving their hands and talking about like the economy and all sorts of complicated arguments 
And what I always found really fascinating was that these people could talk for hours on end, like they could talk for three, four hours. And then at the end of it, you're like, well, what was their point? Like, like, it's like this, therefore this, therefore this, like, no, like there is no point. It's, it's off more often than not, like a, just like a ramble and like a publicity stunt. And what I particularly liked about like the discussion on Twitter is it felt like people had data, they had interesting arguments, mm -hmm. uh, they were willing to be wrong, they were willing to discuss back and forth. So honestly, I think that's been like the one positive of the crisis is that like maybe we'll uh, see news stations no longer be as relevant in Lebanon because it's funny like I mean I, this is somewhat true in the U.S. but like back home it's the way it works is like different news stations are straight up owned by different political parties yeah and so it, you've like basically I was having this discussion with my parents where I'm like well you do realize you've basically been listening to propaganda for like the past 30 years and you know like they kind of were mind blown I, I think that resonated more so with my mom than with my dad but uh -huh. I think the fact that now you do have interesting data points it makes the discussion a lot less about like complex things like geopolitics and makes it a lot more about like, well, how much money do you have? How much money are you spending? Like, where's the money? So it makes the discussions more boring, which I think is a huge plus. Totally, totally. And, and the whole um, political part of this, like the protests, it's difficult to sort of come at the problem that way, I feel like, because it, the root of it, it, this all started with, I guess it was the, the taxes. Um, in Lebanon, but it, essentially it's the central bank's in, insolvency. Uh -huh. Yeah, so that, that, that's an interesting point. So, so there's two separate issues there. The first one is, I would argue that like our financial woes started, you know, 20 years ago, like when, yeah. the, when, the, when the peg started. It's just that it kind of all blew up at this one moment. Like, here's uh -huh. the thing, like, I think a peg is good to keep, it's good for political reasons. It's not so good for financial reasons. And yeah. that, like, if your currency is getting devalued, that tells you like, look, something's going wrong. You know, we should fire these ministers. But instead what happened here, it's like we've had bad decisions for decades and now it's kind of like all blown off and it's a bit too much for, for people uh, to handle. But yeah, like the WhatsApp tax was interesting because it, was, it wasn't that much, you know, it was like $7 and people lost their shit because, <laughs> uh, because like everyone, like all businesses like back home now use WhatsApp. I literally went to uh, Sur, which is like a, like a larger, like, like cultural city in the South and you could order a shisha via WhatsApp. Like it's, it's kind of like businesses have adapted to using this. Yeah. Everyone uses it because text messages are very expensive. They cost like 11 cents a message. Yeah. Uh, and so WhatsApp is the way people communicate. So it was kind of a, I think a very stupid political decision to try and tax it. That said, I believe people are going to lose a lot more money now, uh, like out of, out of what's happening. But, but basically it was interesting because like the, like the, the core message of the protest was like all of them means all of them, which means like, you know, it's not like, oh, my guy's good, your guy's bad, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, like we just want to get rid of all of them. Yeah. And that may not be like a, a good strategy in the long term, but I guess what I really loved as part of the diaspora where it's like, well, I, I would like look at different videos on Twitter and Instagram and you'd see people from like really all over protesting. Like it, it made me feel that like, well, you know, we're not all that different. Mm -hmm. uh, I think what ends up happening is back in Lebanon, like religions are, they're more like an ethnicity more than yeah. a, more than a belief. Um, and so like for me feeling like, okay, well, all these people from all like these different parts of like Lebanon are like, we're kind of all the same. Like, you know, I know we like house music. We, we like good food. And so it makes you feel like, okay, well, this is home. So, and I guess that, that was also part of why I felt like I wanted to debate more with people about these topics. Cause like people are trying to find a, a way to get out of it. Um, but it, it's challenging. Yeah. Yeah. And so now the sort of the 
protest consensus is get rid of the cabinet. Um, the prime minister already did resign. He's sort of just caretaking. So nothing can really be done until a new political cabinet is established. Yeah, um, we actually had one established uh, tonight. Um, yeah. So it was just progress. But uh, unfortunately, like, so, so there, there's a bunch of caveats here because yeah. uh, my prediction is that the cabinet won't survive for very long because like all the decisions that they will make will be extremely unpopular. And so like it remains to be seen like whether they'll be able to manage it politically. And the other is that it does feel like a sort of homogenous cabinet that's mostly owned by a single political party. And so I don't know if that's sustainable long term or if in the short term it means they'll be able to get more done. I guess we'll wait and see. Like I'm uh, I'm I think I'm pessimistic, but I'm going to, you know, give my give it the benefit of the doubt and just see what they do over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, the hard decisions point you made sounds very true to me, just given that like somebody has to take the loss of mm -hmm. what the central bank has incurred and, and figuring out who, who that is and how to like, you know, sort of like recorrect the economy is mm -hmm. going to take some hard decisions. Yeah, like, like basically there's a couple like let's say with, you know, like the lira will probably crash. So letting the lira crash would be extremely unpopular because it would reduce the purchasing power of everyone back home. So like it means you can't pay for rent, you can't pay for bread. And if you like miss a couple of meals, like all of a sudden, you know, like it's not surprising that you've become violent. And on the other side of the spectrum, if, if you're wealthy, like there's been a lot of talks around haircuts, which is like, like the main idea is you just take a fixed chunk of people's deposits, like let's say 30 to 70%. And you're just like, okay, well, you know, we take this money now, do whatever you want with the rest. Uh, this can be done in several ways, uh, which is, I think, an interesting thing because people generally think like, oh, like, like if I just tell you, like, I'm going to take 30% of your money, you're going to get really mad at me. But if I tell you, hey, I'll return all your money in two years, uh, because of inflation, I'm effectively doing the same thing, uh, but it's more politically palatable. Uh, and so I, I wonder like what, what this cabinet will, will end up doing. But regardless, I think like, uh, I think smart people won't be fooled. Like they know it's going to, it's going to happen anyway. It, it's probably unavoidable, but it is still frustrating to think like, uh, like, like think of it from this perspective. Like if the, the narrative will be something along the lines of, well, the government, you know, made all sorts of poor decisions, uh, the central bank supported them. And now people are paying for that debt with their deposits. Like that's just not a palatable statement in any shape or form, but it, it is the reality of, of what's happening. I was going to say it's screwed up, but I mean, it, it, it's, it's the reality as you're pointing yeah. out. Um, but so like back to you visiting over the holidays, what, what kind of questions were your friends asking you? Um, yeah, so I think the most basic one was, is it legal? It was an interesting one I found. Yeah. Like that's an interesting one because if you were like, let's say uh, a Lebanese bank, then it's actually illegal for you to hold Bitcoin in your reserves uh, mm -hmm. as to why that's the case. I don't know. I don't have that insider knowledge to say. Uh, I just know that it is the case. So, so yeah, so I would tell them like, yeah, you know, it, it, it's legal. You can do it. And then be like, okay, well, how would I buy it? And that ended up being way more complex than I expected because I thought like, hey, like maybe they could just download Cash App or they download like Coinbase, like they go to Coinbase or whatever and they just buy some. Turns out all of those like exchanges expect like a US bank account. And so after all of this, like, you know, I went through like, then there's like one called Rain Financial that I got in touch with. They're, they're based out of Bahrain. But the issue there was that they, were, they, they said, well, we don't take Lebanese liras, but we take like, let's say, uh, I don't know, like Durham. But the Durham, I would 
basically equate it to a dollar in some sense because if you can print oil it basically sorry if you can mine oil like like just like i don't know what the word is if you if you can take oil out of the ground uh then it effectively means you can print us dollars Mm-hmm. Uh, and so like you can keep a peg you can do all sorts of stuff it means your currency is stable but in our case you you, you really can't another question was uh, around volatility yeah. oh, oh so sorry sorry before volatility basically like I, what i realized quickly was that the only way to really purchase bitcoin in a reasonable way back home was for someone to pay you like us cash and then you give them bitcoins that you would have purchased with like let's say an american bank account mm-hmm. and then Uh, they give you the cash and then you go back to the US with this cash. But then there's all sorts of issues there. Like if you go with, back with more than $10,000, you need to declare it. You know, like it becomes in this weird position where like I would only really do it for my friends and only then for small amounts. But mm-hmm. like what if you're someone with like $100,000, like what, what do you do then? Like then, then it becomes trickier to figure out uh, how, yeah. how to deal with it. And how does Venmo uh, play a role in that? Can, can people in, in Lebanon actually have a Lebanese-based uh, Venmo account? Um, yeah, so it's it's an interesting question. So short answer is no, because banks and central banks have imposed strict limits on how much do- U.S. dollars you can export out of the country. And so the idea now is that like if you're using Venmo, if you're buying Bitcoin, you can't even transfer money to a foreign bank account, like because that would be con- considering like you taking money out of the country, which would make the financial crisis even worse. So. It's complicated to to reason through it, but the main the main way it would work is that let's say I like I for one like I, I live in the U.S. so I could host a Venmo account on behalf of my parents, for example, mm-hmm. and, and if they need to pay for stuff in U.S. dollars, then they can uh, you know talk to me. I'll I'll deposit the money from my U.S. bank account in, in which in a way they can use it, and then they would use it. So it's more of a it's so this, it's just a U.S. Venmo account that they have access to. It's not a Lebanese. Venmo account. This is kind of gets back to a more interesting point, which is basically a, a dollar in a Lebanese bank account is a different currency than a dollar in a that's like in a U.S. bank account. We have a like a pretty popular economist back home called Dan Azu who calls it the Lawler, so the Lebanese dollar. And so the idea is, well, even if I if I give you a check for like a thousand dollars in a Lebanese bank account, can't really use it. So it's not really worth. A thousand U.S. dollars. It's worth right. maybe four hundred or five hundred. And so what what we've seen happen now a lot is like let's say you're trying to buy a car, for example, or a dishwasher or anything that you're uh, importing from abroad. Then a lot of them are now expecting a significant chunk of the payment to be done in foreign foreign accounts, mm-hmm. even though most people don't have foreign accounts. So it's this weird setting where like they want to sell their supply, but at the same time they don't want to sell it for a currency that's useless. So everyone's just kind of like biding their time now, but but I think the consequence of this is that we'll see a lot less foreign stuff imported in general. Yeah, uh, which is unfortunate because like and and in, in some way the the peg kind of subsidized a more luxurious lifestyle for the average Lebanese than would have otherwise been possible. Yeah, uh, but on the other hand, it's more painful to lose money than to have never had it in the first place. Uh, so 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 I kind of you know I I understand both sides of it. I think if it was like if your purchasing power slow, slowly eroded over 20 years, I think that's okay. But if you like all of a sudden you're rich now you're poor or now you're poor but you're now you're completely broke, I think that's like a, like less palatable. Yeah yeah, much harder to adjust your spending habits. Um, back to volatility. You're you're about to talk about that. Yeah. So, so with volatility, I, I think that's an interesting point because I, I would often argue with people that I don't think volatility is intrinsically bad, just yeah. because like the 
the opposite of volatility is a peg. And a peg is for me like, well, while it's not volatile, it's extremely fragile where it's like, well, like it was fine until it wasn't. And when it wasn't, it was really, really bad. And that's and now. So, yeah, that's now. And, and so, so like, I try to tell people like you're saying volatility is bad, but you've experienced the opposite in a very real way. So how can you say volatility is bad in a blanket way? And, and I think the thing is like with, with Bitcoin, I think it, it is a sort of like an asymmetrical bet. Like if you buy one, like, you know, like worst case, you'll lose uh, like $8,600 or whatever. But best case, you know, it's moons and then, you know, like, you know, everything works out. But, but regardless, like, like I do feel like if you look at the data, you, you, you can say, well, 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 it was actually like one of the best performing assets of the past 10 years. So how can you really call it a risky investment? I would argue then even like, let's say if you compare it to stocks, like, well, you can't trade stocks 24 seven because the market closes and blah, blah, blah. So there's at points where it's not volatile, but it is actually volatile. It's just that the volatility is not transparent. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's one of the points I make in my article where like, let's say, uh, you know, you, you deposit your money in a Lebanese bank or a U.S. bank or whatever. And then you, you as, a, as a depositor, you don't know what the risk associated with your deposits are, like whether they have 10% of your deposits, whether they have 90%, you have no idea. So it is, in fact, volatile as well as seen by crashes. It's just that you don't observe it. So I feel like with Bitcoin, at least it makes me comfy to be like, well, like, yeah, it is volatile, but over time it's, it's growing in value. And so I'm fine with it being volatile. I think it's more transparent. For me, it doesn't bother me personally, but uh, it definitely bothers friends. Uh, so it's something I have to like, kind of work through them with. From that perspective, too, it makes sense. It's just volatile in a different way compared to your bank account. So it's not a bad idea to sort of try out both, both ways in, ca- in case one crashes. Yeah. I mean, if anything, like Bitcoin is far more liquid too. So like, it depends, yeah. right? Like, like, like if you have a dollar in a US bank account, like that is still highly liquid, which is why I would argue that like the, the use case, like it's kind of what I said before, like the use case for Bitcoin in the US is there. Like, I think there is a strong reason why Bitcoin should be a thing in the US. But I would argue like in other countries, like where it's like the central, like where like there's just really bad decisions being made by government or central bank that are really affecting people in real ways. Like you're just straight up taking people's money away. Then the use case becomes very obvious. The thing is uh, like today in Lebanon, maybe you need to struggle to convince people to actually spend real money, like to basically trade their US, US dollars in cash for Bitcoin. Like that's still an uphill battle, mm-hmm. but you don't have to convince them of the use case anymore. Like everyone understands the use case now, like even my grandma does. And I think right. that's like very different from before. Yeah, like, and in fact, like I had an interesting discussion with my grandma where she said, uh, like back in the day, so my great grandpa once told my grandpa that like, look, son, if, if politically things are not going too well, you should withdraw all your money from the banks because they'll like confiscate it from you. And I was like, what? Like, you know, my great grandpa kind of knew this and me and, you know, my dad and, you know, my whole family were kind of like, uh, like, we're like, like, we just didn't see it. Like, we saw it coming theoretically, but like, we didn't see it coming to the point where right before it happened, we were like, okay, well, let's withdraw all our money and, and, you know, and, you know, be fine and not be, you know, stressed out right now. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. And you don't have to answer this, this if you don't want to, but um, I'm, I'm curious about your, your family back in Lebanon. Ha- have they been affected or can, do they have caps on, on how much money they can withdraw? Yeah. Like, it's kind of challenging. Like you can't really withdraw anything anymore. Like you can uh-huh. withdraw like basic living expenses and you can pay for stuff locally with checks. Like let's say you want to, for example, buy like a house. You can buy a house in Lebanon. 
uh, with like a Lebanese check if someone is in debt to a bank. But if someone is not in debt, then they would expect you to pay them abroad, in which case, like most people can't pay for that, in which case you just, you just wouldn't do it. So I, I'm personally not that affected because I'm still like living off of savings I made when I worked at Microsoft uh, and stocks I have. So, so I'm good. But like in my, fa- in my family's case, I definitely think their living, like their standards of living are going to decrease substantially. Uh, but like, we'll see how, how long that takes to happen. It's not, I'm, it's not something I'm very happy about. Sure, sure. As far as the level of adoption and interest uh, in Lebanon, you, uh, uh-huh. you sort of touched on that with your friends uh, wanting uh-huh. to know more. But what, have you, what sort of have you actually seen? Because it sounds like you tried to open up um, an account for your friends uh-huh. and that was like not uh-huh. easy. Yeah, so, so, so I will say this. I think like, uh, unfortunately, I don't have hard data to tell you something like, well, this percentage of Lebanese people have a, uh, have, have a fraction of a Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I wish I had that data, but I have more anecdotes. And I, I, and basically, there is, like, within the nerds group, there is, like, one of them, like, Mahmoud Dreem, who's, like, really into uh, cryptocurrencies, even yeah. though he's, I think he's more interested as well in, uh, like, forms of distributed governance. For me, personally, I feel like currency is already a big enough of a deal that I would rather focus there and then worry about other kinds of coins. But, that's just, more of a, yeah, but that's just more of a personal thing, I guess. Uh, yeah, um, I'm with you. And and I will say that like uh, there there's a group that I like a Discord group that's been growing tremendously. Like when I first joined, we were maybe about like 15 people or so, but now the group is like just crossed like 100 people, and it's mostly developers there. So like they're kind of thinking, how can we make it possible for diaspora members to give bitcoins to their family members? So like sharing a PayPal account, that's not ideal, but how do you streamline an experience like that to prevent scamming, to prevent like all sorts of weird stuff? Because I think like the the interesting lesson to draw for me was I kind of looked to Venezuela as an interesting case study of what could happen uh, to us. And you definitely see in in Venezuela, you see a couple of things happen. Like one, crypto, specifically Bitcoin, boomed. Online banking and foreign bank accounts boomed. And then scamming boomed because in, 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 in financial crises, the scammers don't view themselves as scammers anymore. They view themselves as survivors. And so consider that like my, my family is not necessarily very, very technically savvy. And so like, let's say they went to a local Bitcoin guy and we're like, okay, well, here's like a thousand dollars. Can we buy some Bitcoin with it? You know, I would rather be there, you know, to make sure that they don't get scammed. Yeah. That's um, a really interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in in, a, in like an economically depressed area or recessed area, the price of committing a crime definitely goes down. Yeah, yeah. Venezuela is interesting. I, I am thinking of that as an example. Lebanon's very different in a lot of ways. Uh, the variety of uh, economic issues Lebanon is dealing with versus Venezuela's sort of like overall um, need for, I guess, an over an overhaul both politically and. Uh, economically but uh, uh-huh. i mean i guess it, it's definitely the example we can like look to as an idea for what could happen i guess yeah there's definitely like like sort of ideas that some technologists could borrow and see kind of predict because i would predict like oh uh, in- interesting recent development like about two days ago uh, what was happening is that like banks wouldn't allow you to withdraw your u.s dollars but they would allow you to withdraw Lebanese liras, like, and, and, and still assuming that the official rate is 1,500, right? Yeah. So then you would go to a currency exchange guy and then you would trade Lebanese lira, you would buy like dollars valued at 2,500, maybe 3,000. And then 
you would just like hoard dollars at home. So this was a very common thing. Like now, like a lot of people are just like stockpiling cash at home. Yeah. Uh, and like the interest rates have become irrelevant because like the main reason why so many people had money, by the way, in, in these banks in the first place. And the reason why people call it a Ponzi is because you would make 8% like roughly just having your money in, in a Lebanese bank account. And that was considered extremely safe and stuff. So that always felt weird to me because like in the US, I feel like if I get 8% on the, in the stock market, like I would pat myself on the back, you know, and think of myself like a Warren Buffett type. But over there, it's like every person is making that and it's like risk-free and it's not obvious yeah. how the random Lebanese bankers are, are making more money than some of the top hedge funds in the US. Like no one asked these questions. And I believe it was a psychological effect where because you're making so much money, you lose your uh, sense of judgment because you sure. think you're very smart for making the money. Sure. So basically what, what's happened now is like the, the currency exchange off, like offices have kind of replaced the roles of banks. Like banks have become tellers nowadays. Like they're not, you know, giving out loans. They're not doing any sort of business. They're just there, you know, dripping you your money. And then you take this money and you go exchange it at the local currency office and you, in the hopes of stockpiling enough dollars over time to maybe like go outside maybe, or just like, just as a better store of value than a, which is funny because if you ask people in the Bitcoin community, they'll be like, well, of course, the, like, like fiat money can never be a store of value because of inflation, but it's relative, right? It, it, yeah. it still stores its value better than a currency that's just like completely free falling. So funnily enough, now the central bank has actually uh, forced currency exchange offices to cap their rate where they can't sell a dollar for more than 2000 Lebanese lira. And so what ends up happening is that now they're no longer selling their dollars. So they're saying, okay, great, you kept it. So now we're not going to sell it. And so effectively now everyone's being forced to use uh, a currency that they would rather not use. Yeah. You said a lot of like interesting stuff. Uh, I guess the one thing too is that the great interest rates were set sort of as a trickle down effect from the central bank because they needed foreign dollars to pay for the imports. Yeah. So it's kind of like a bad economic addiction that created this system. I mean, yeah, like even people like Nassim Talib, like I think he was the first one to use the term like Ponzi. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we're like, this is probably going to go as a case study into history books of the biggest Ponzi ever orchestrated in history. Because I believe this is the first precedent for a government uh, orchestrated Ponzi. That said, if you ask people in government, they, they won't call it that. They'll say like, well, like, uh, you know, like to his credit, like, I mean, I think like the governor of the central bank, like the government did tell him like, well, you need to stabilize the currency. And so if that is your goal, he did make the correct decisions. Still, like, given that you know what's going to happen further down the line, people should have questioned how valid, how, how important it is to actually stabilize the currency. And I know, like, all sorts of people talked about it online, but definitely it's not like now. Like now, like, we've kind of gotten in this position where, like, economists have kind of become, like, new station celebrities. And everyone's saying, like, well, I, I told you so, I told you so. Maybe they did, but I feel like, uh, I don't know, like, like, I just wish those people had stronger voices, like, before the crisis. But then, yeah. then again no one would have listened to them as much before like for no one cared all that much about finance now everyone back home is becoming very financially literate because yeah. like they realized and this is something i actually tell my friends like let's say you work at a job for 30 years you know you're going there for at least eight hours a day you're working your ass off and you're doing all of this to accumulate money but then you don't spend like at least a month of your life understanding what money is 
And I think that's just kind of like a, a failure of like education system and like failure of prioritizing. Because like you work all this time for like this asset and you don't even know what you're actually getting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's definitely a happiness limiter. The The Economist comment you made, uh, have you ever, do you watch South Park? I do, yeah. The character like, Captain Hindsight? Yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Flies yeah. in after a crisis and, and says what's uh-huh. wrong. Uh, even like the the and it's gone meme has become very popular back home like with oh, the yeah. banks it's like oh like, i'll just put this in this thing for you and like blah 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 so here's the thing i think that like the like the optics really mattered because if you go to like so for the longest time banks were kind of like the the stable business of lebanon yeah like being a banker was great like their offices were beautiful you know like the service was top-notch like you walk in they'll make you coffee uh you know they'll like humor you they'll laugh at your bad jokes so there definitely was this culture of like really valuing the customer Uh, but now it's like very different now like you're coming in and you get a number and like you know you have to like beg for some money and if you ask for a bit more they ask you for why and even if if you ask for why they'll say no they'll laugh at your explanations definitely like now there's like a lot of videos of people getting very angry at banks like people are like destroying them Uh, people are yelling at them some guy walked in the one in a hatchet there's a famous one of a guy uh, like just kind of like jumped on top, like j- like climbed up on a car and then just like started jumping at soldiers. But it's a bad look, right? Like now if you go to a bank, like they're empty after like 2, 3 p.m. And before 2, 3 p.m., like there's just like the military there. Like that's not a good look, you know, like that doesn't instill confidence. No. Uh, and so I don't know, like, and, and I would even argue that, so the banks, like, I don't know who made the decision, but I think it was a very poor decision where the first day the protest started, they decided to close the banks because they were afraid of a run. I think that was a, even if, like, I think you should have let the run happen for three hours. And if it indeed, if it did indeed happen, then close the banks. Uh, because historically, even during the civil war, no one did a run on a bank. In 2006, there was like a war between Hezbollah and Israel. No one ran on the banks. So I think that may have been like a premature panic decision. And I think it completely destroyed all confidence in the banking system because they closed for like about like 10 days. Again, it's not a good look. I think in retrospect, like I wonder, I wonder who made that decision. I think they should probably get fired. If they haven't already resigned. Yeah, probably. I, I Actually, funnily enough, no one resigns in Lebanon. Like that's not a thing you do. What about because- the prime minister though? So, so, so he was the only one who resigned. And there's, uh, I think it's interesting. On one hand, I do respect him for being the only one who resigned. But oh, okay. on the other, uh, some people criticize him for being like, well, you're resigning so that people beg for you. And then you just come back on your white horse and then say, well, I'm going to save you. And then, you know, we're back at square zero. But now people want you as opposed to they don't want you. But definitely, like, like I feel like there's many subtle things that could have happened. Like, on one hand, like, I think our government is very like, uh, like there's this culture we have back home where politicians are kind of treated like demigods. I don't know if this is the same. And, uh, and, and I think like the more developed your country, the less people should care about politicians in general. Because like then if you're a businessman and you're making a lot of money, well, you're the one everyone like like people want their respect like you're the one with influence but back home like a lot of them like they'll have their own like military convoys if you're a politician if you're ever like a like a member of parliament you get two soldiers for life as your personal bodyguards you get a salary for life if you die your family gets the salary for life and so it's kind of almost like if if you want to buy a car you don't pay uh 
you don't pay tax on it. So a lot of them have these extremely luxurious cars. And so they definitely feel like the second class of citizens, like they're this like first class of citizens and then everyone else is a second class. As far as I know, like they're all, a lot of them are independently rich. Like a lot of them uh, either had businesses before they were politicians or use their connections to become, to further their business interests. Yeah. And even then, none of them said, okay, like we're not going to take a salary. Or like we're not going to, you know, or we're going to have austerity measures and we're going to fire most of our employees or something. You know, like about a quarter of the Lebanese population works for the government. And a lot of those people don't show up to work. Like they don't have official job titles. They're more like of a accounting entry so that different political parties can get money. And so you look at this and, you know, you think like, damn, like, like we have a meme back home. It's like, it's called like when it daule and it means like, oh, where's the government? Like, like, why can't the government can come save me? Why can't the government help me? And I feel like I've been telling people, I think this is a very destructive meme because actually the less daule you have, like the less government you have, probably the better off you are. Because in this case, like the government has only been a net negative as far as we're concerned. Like this may not be the case and more advanced economies. It's like I, I myself am a libertarian, so like I would argue like government is generally not very useful. Mm-hmm. But I, I do like see like examples like I don't know like China where it's like, well, while, while I may not agree with, with them ethically, I do think what they did economically was remarkable. So maybe there is like a that's like a strong like anti like counterexample to the libertarian school of thought if you want if you want if you're looking for economic progress. But yeah, like I generally think like it's been bad. I, I don't claim to be an expert in this topic. I I uh, learned about it basically over the past month or so, but it has been fascinating and actually understanding from people who have like been in the country and outside to see to have both perspectives is is pretty awesome. But so right now, what do you think is like the most legitimate use case for Bitcoin in Lebanon? Yeah. So I think here's what's going to happen right now people are trying to survive. So that means is that like, let's say I have $100,000 in the bank. Like maybe I don't have $100,000 anymore. Maybe now I have 50, but I just want to preserve the value, right? So this is what I would call like the survival scenario. Like, so after that, like, let's say now you have your money and now you're thinking, well, like I can't get like, in, like I can't put it in a, in, in a bank. Like I can't put this, like I can't get interest on it. So with inflation, it's going to just eat up my savings. So if I want to retire, like cash isn't ideal. And so that's kind of where I see it as like, I see it as a store of value as a, as a first thing. And then I also see it as a medium of exchange, but I think that's a more subtle point, which, which I'll dive into right now. So basically uh, a lot of criticisms, like, and, and I have this discussion with a lot of people on the, the Project Jasper Discord group that I mentioned, where people tell me like, well, we should go to malls and convince them to accept Bitcoin. I think that's fine, but I don't think that's the main bottleneck because I think what's going to happen now is this. Basically, all of most of the big businesses in Lebanon are like import businesses where like you get fancy clothes from abroad, you get fancy cars from abroad, and then you sell them at like an insane rate and people are willing to pay for it. So a lot of these people got very rich this way. It's a very sustainable business. It's an easy business. There's always demand for this stuff, like alcohol, like like fancy alcohol from abroad, fancy clothes from abroad, uh, iPhones, all of this stuff will like you know will, will exist. But what's going to happen now is that if if the peg goes away and if dollars become a lot more valuable, then people aren't really going to be able to afford this stuff anyway. Mm-hmm. So 
then all of a sudden, like, yeah, maybe you can pay for this stuff, but it's going to be so expensive that it's not really like the value proposition of malls is going to go down. Like malls aren't really going to survive, I believe, as a business anymore in Lebanon. Yeah. So instead, I believe like we're going to head to a more like a sort of barter economy where it's like, well, like I can buy stuff from you, you know, or like I can buy a service from you. Like, let's say I'm a programmer and someone wants to buy my time. And so they like they could pay me. Uh, they don't have a they don't have a foreign bank account, but you know I do. Their Lebanese bank won't let them transfer their money. So now like they have new money. Like so now you're making money. This is kind of a depressing fact that I've told people on Twitter. But like Bitcoin is not going to help you withdraw the money that's stuck in a Lebanese bank account. Of course not. Yeah. Okay. Consider it gone. You know that's very extremely depressing. It makes me very sad. It makes my parents furious. But it's just the reality of it. And so great. So now you're making new money. So you're young enough, you're making new money. Uh, either you're selling your services or you're selling a product or you're doing whatever. A, a, a good use case, my sister was actually an artist. So like, you know, no one's going to pay her in US, like US cash anymore. But like, you know, they could reasonably pay her and, and they're not and she's not going to accept money if it's deposited to a Lebanese bank account because she doesn't sure. have access to it. So she's going to say, well, pay me to my Bitcoin wallet. And I think that's where it becomes very interesting. The killer app for Bitcoin is avoiding capital controls. And that's where I think it can really thrive as a, as a medium of exchange. Plus, it has this added benefit of like, well, you have a low time preference and you now you just have money. Well, now what's happening to a lot of people is that like, let's say you're rich and you're thinking like, fuck, like my money is going to go away anyway. So why don't I just take my money and buy an apartment with it? Okay. But here's the thing. Everyone's doing the same thing. So apartments are actually vastly overvalued today in Lebanon. Yeah. So what's happening is you have like, but like, let's say you're rich, you own like four or five apartments. Those, apart those apartments are going to crash because once you come to sell it, there's not enough demand. Like there's not enough diaspora members coming back to Lebanon being like, hey, I want to buy like a million dollar apartment. Like these people just are not going to exist. So then even though you thought your apartment was worth a million dollars, turns out it's worth like 200. And so you thought you were making a good investment in real estate, but effectively you were not. So even real estate, I think, will not be a good store of value. And so that's where I think uh, assets like Bitcoin and gold uh, mm -hmm. will be really valuable. I've even had discussions with one of my friends who uh, sells jewelry saying that he, he believes diamonds are a, a better investment because they're smaller and more portable. Mm -hmm. uh, I think in that case, I believe Bitcoin is better. But I, I guess, I don't know, that's a, that's a longer debate. I, I, like, I personally believe more in, in, in Bitcoin than, than gold just because it's so heavy. And yeah, like, and I think it exposes you more easily to theft. Bitcoin has more more security and volatility. So let's say the country, let, let's say everything becomes worse, right? And people are get really desperate and they feel like they need to steal to survive. They can't steal from politicians because the way politicians live is that they essentially have fortresses in the middle of Beirut. Citadels. Like it'll be like like citadel, like exactly. It's like you need to go in and then there's like a second entrance and then there's military and then they have their personal guard and then you know, maybe the money is not even there. Maybe it's in a Swiss bank account. Maybe it's somewhere else. Maybe it's not even in their names. So they, you can't physically steal from them. So who are you going to steal from? You're going to steal from rich people that have no political influence. And if those rich people just have like a bunch of gold in their, in their apartment, you know, it doesn't matter if you have a safe. They'll just put a gun to your head and just tell you, give me, give me your gold. Uh, so that's what I like. The, I, I really like the idea of honeypots and Bitcoin wallets where you can be like, well, like, sure, like steal this amount from me. But maybe I actually have a lot more, and you know, you, you you're not gonna know how much I have. I think that's a very powerful value proposition as well. But yeah, like I think people are gonna value survival first. I think then they're gonna 
they're going to value growth second and then medium of exchange third. It's just that they're not there yet. I think right now we're still in the panic mode and maybe even in the denial mode where I've even had discussions with some friends of mine where they got very angry at me. Like they got, they're, they're like, they're, they're like, you're such a downer and just stop. Like you're making us depressed. Like this is not helpful, you know? And I'm kind of like, I agree I am a downer, but it doesn't mean that this is not going to happen. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't at least educate yourself about what online banking is about, what Bitcoin is about, what gold is about in the meantime, because you're like, you like, let's say you lost your old money. You don't want that to happen to your new money. Like, like you'd be a fool if this happened to you twice. Yeah. And in fact, this is one thing banks are saying now, like, well, if you have new money, uh, they won't put capital controls on it, but like, who the fuck's going to trust them at this point? Like, it's kind of <laughs> like, you're like, yeah, sure. Like, I'm not, I'm totally going to deposit my money. Like, hell no. Like, you're not like, like any reasonable person wouldn't. So, yeah. It's, it's interesting to think about the stages. Are you, do you have, do you see any sort of use for cryptocurrency lending applications? Uh-huh. I think I would I would maybe put that as a fourth priority. Not there yet. Just because, yeah, yeah. like not there yet. Just because, like, I think right now everyone is hoarding cash. Uh-huh. No one is spending jack shit. People are buying jewelry. People are buying real estate. Like they're buying the least liquid assets you could probably think of. And then they're just holding on to them and they're just like waiting it out. And like they're waiting to see what's going to happen. I think lending will be more relevant once things really crash. And then you have a new wave of people thinking, well, how can we rebuild this economy? And is the upside worth it? Like, let's say right now, I personally don't feel like it's worth it. Like right now, for me, for example, it wouldn't make sense to go back to go back to Lebanon and try to start a software business. Yeah. But maybe in five to 10 years, it would. And in which case, like, let's say I've, I've generated some wealth in the US and I see some really promising talent. I think we're going to see a boom of VC, like kind of angel investing. We're going to see a boom of like small scale uh, lending platforms. But at this point, it's not obvious how you would make your money back. And even then, if you did make your money back, if you're putting that money back in a Lebanese bank account, like that <laughs> money is not, not worth much. So if anything, now people are just hoarding assets and I don't see people spending money at all. And in fact, you see this people's spending behavior has changed. Like if you have cash, you're not spending it at all. You treat it like gold. But if you have money in a bank account, then you just spend it willy-nilly. Because the logic there is if they do a percentage-based haircut, then might as well just spend it. Because if like, then if you have a smaller total pool of money, at least you have stuff you can use. Like, and not, not all of them is useful. Like, it could be like an iPad. It could be a laptop. Like, not all of them are actually you know, like these liquid assets. But at least you can use it. And at least it's not money that's directly going to not you, basically. At least it's still yours at that point. Yeah, bad money chases good money out of circulation. Exactly. So uh, the central bank currency, that, that's uh-huh. also a conversation topic. How, how much do you know about that and like, what do you think of it? Uh, like the, like, like the, the peg or the, like the central bank's liquidity? So I know that there's conversations about the Lebanese central bank launching a cryptocurrency as a oh, way. Yeah, that- yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've, I've heard rumors about it. Like apparently they're more than just rumors. Like apparently it's a real thing. Mm-hmm. I am extremely skeptical about it uh, for a very simple reason. I feel like, why would people use this over Bitcoin? Well, they would only use it if they were forced to, in which case it tells me it's not good for the consumer. 
So, so that's kind of like the, the logic I take there yeah. where I think it makes sense. I would expect like, cause I, like, I know China is, is like, you know, pioneering their own digital currency. I know the U S has been talking about it. I saw some rumors on the news. Effectively, the dollar is probably already a digital currency at this point. Like most of it isn't like, you know, it's numbers on computer screens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think for the central bank, it makes sense from their perspective to exactly control the supply more yeah. and to better understand uh, how the money is being transferred. So I think it would help them, you know, figure out like, well, how many people like, like what are imports versus exports, figure out like money laundering. Spending habits. Uh, yeah. Spending habits. But from the consumer perspective, I can easily see this devolve into like a dystopian nightmare uh, because <laughs> yeah. I feel like what could easily happen is something like, well, we'll, be, we'll audit you very rigor- rigorously if you're not a politician, but if you are, then you do whatever you want. And I think that's very dangerous. And so, again, like m- my answer to those discussions is why not Bitcoin? And I think that like the why not Bitcoin would mean because, well, maybe we don't need a central bank anymore. Yeah. And then it's no surprise that the central bank would be opposed to it. Whether a digital currency would be better than our paper currency, maybe, maybe not. I think like we already, you know, like recently we printed like a whole boatload of like liras to, and so the rumors there is that they would lirify people's accounts. So like, let's say even if you have US dollars in a bank account, they will tell you like, well, sure, you can withdraw them, but you can withdraw them in Lebanese pounds. Yeah. But then they also say, well, you can't transfer them. So effectively they're doing a form of haircut that's more convoluted because they're giving you a, a less liquid and less valuable asset yeah. uh, in exchange. I don't know, I'm, I'm extremely skeptical about it, like just because I feel like I don't think it's going to benefit people. I think it's going to benefit the government. Maybe that'll solve some political problems in the short term, but even then I'm skeptical as to whether this is the solution. Yeah, well, those are all my questions. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Dave, this was amazing, so I really appreciate your time. Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Bitcoin Magazine podcast is a BTC media produced podcast on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network. You can find us on Twitter at Bitcoin Magazine and you can find out about other engaging shows we produce by subscribing to our feed on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.